Exodus chapter 1, I will be reading from the English Standard Version, uh, preaching here in uh, the book of Exodus. This past week, I attended a preaching conference, and at the preaching conference, they encouraged or they guided pastors into working through uh, various texts within the book of Exodus, and I was assigned Exodus chapter 1. Uh, so I'm not preaching through Exodus in Columbus. This was a one-off sermon uh, for me to write, and I trust it will be a blessing uh, to you all. As you likely know, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and Genesis is that first book of the Bible. Uh, and in some ways, Genesis takes 50 chapters to answer this question, how in the world did God's people end up in Egypt? And the book of Exodus then takes up this question for consideration. And how did they get out? How did they get in and how did they get out? That's the first uh, two books of the Bible in a very real sense. And Exodus 1 has a troubled beginning, but we get signs of this uh, redemption that they will receive are already appearing in Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to read all of the passage here of Exodus 1. As you listen, I want you to hear a kind of drumbeat that appears in the passage, verse 7, verse 12, verse 20. There's a theme that builds, and you'll hear it as we read. I'll read Exodus 1 before I read. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you give insight into your word, that we will grow in understanding and love, uh, that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, even as we consider. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens." They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of, people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. 
This is the word of God. Well, Exodus chapter 1 tells the story of a growing pressure and attack on the people of God. And I will speak to that growing pressure in just a minute. But with that in mind, I'll say this, that in our house and maybe in some of yours, uh, the movie or soundtrack of the past five months has been the movie Encanto. Uh, Those songs play in our house uh, over and over again. I think some of my girls uh, could sing them for you, and I could actually probably sing some of the songs as well uh, if that happened to be a good idea this afternoon. Uh, It is not a good idea. There is one song, and maybe some of you, if you know the soundtrack, might already guess the song. There's one song there that gets uh, a sense of life as a moving, relentless pressure uh, moving against us. Uh, The lyrics in there are not just kid lyrics, uh, but they speak of the human experience of a deep underlying pressure and anxiety. I'll just give you a few of the words of the song. We measure this growing pressure, keeps growing, keep going, because all we know is pressure like a drip that'll never stop. Pressure like a drip That will never stop. That song gets 160 million views on YouTube in two months, not just because little girls are listening to it. People listen to it because it speaks to something of the human experience, the experience of life as this movement or felt movement of pressure that adds and adds and adds, and someday we wonder, are we going to crack? Generations of people are dying. Pharaoh enslaves us. Next thing you know, he's killing our babies. How much more can be added on top until the pressure makes us crack? And maybe you would say the same thing this morning, or this afternoon. I preached this as well this morning, of course. You'd say the same thing this afternoon. You're facing aging, and work maybe is pressing in hard, or you've got conflict in relationships, or you've got another exam in school next week. And you're saying, this pressure is growing and growing. I wonder if I'm about to snap. And the church says this kind of thing. The church should feel itself in the book of Exodus. The church faces all these growing struggles. There's doctrinal struggle. There's persecution at large. There's conflict within the church or in the church at large. And we wonder, are we about to snap? Are we about to break? Is one more thing that hits going to knock us completely over? The reality is, no matter where you are this afternoon, whether you know Jesus or don't know Jesus, wouldn't you like it if somehow that overwhelming, nagging pressure could go away for just one week, to just live a week or live a month, where that sense of something pressing in on you wasn't there? Now, I can't exactly offer that to you this afternoon, but maybe you'd have even deeper questions, questions that get addressed in Exodus chapter 1, like, what is God doing in this life of relentless attack against us? What is he building? What is he about? What is his solution? Does God have the ability to save us? What is the solution to the growing onslaught the people of God face? That is Exodus chapter 1. We'll consider Exodus 1 here this afternoon in five parts. 
And you have that in an outline in front of you if you are looking at that. So the opening comments will be, or opening section will be uh, somewhat of a big picture analysis, and the final one will be somewhat more big picture. Uh, and the middle three will work together as we think about various oppressions faced in Exodus chapter 1. But the first thing we must see in Exodus 1 is that big picture uh, perspective on the whole text, uh, and we'll call it the drumbeats. The drumbeats of Exodus chapter 1. Did you hear that drumbeat I asked you to listen for in Exodus chapter 1? At one level, the drumbeat is Pharaoh pressing in and things getting harder and harder. But there's something even deeper that kept repeating itself as we read. Uh, When I read larger passages of scripture to my kids, I often find a phrase or two. And I say, listen for this phrase. It's going to come up three or four times. And every time you hear it, clap. And in some ways, I'm just asking you, what would I have my kids clapping for in Exodus chapter 1? Did you catch it? Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Verse 20. And the people multiplied and grew strong. Do you hear that? The oppression is coming, the challenge is coming, the difficulty is coming, and they grow, grow, grow. They advance. They're not cracking, they're not breaking. It may seem like it from their own perspective, but actually the exact opposite is taking place. It's a miraculous, unexpected, you might say paradoxical experience. The more the oppression comes, the people just keep Growing. This is the drumbeat of the passage. Uh, you can may picture this passage as these are, it's like a military drumbeat. And uh, Pharaoh and all the forces against them are uh, banging their drums and getting ready to uh, break down the people of God. But there's something that's beating coming right back at them. Maybe you'd say there's someone that has a drumbeat. The living God is building and growing his people through all the deep oppression. Growing pressure, growing people. If you've got that written down on your notes, that there's growing pressure and growing people, in some ways you already understand the whole message of Exodus chapter 1. And the rest of this sermon is just through the word of God, uh, seeking to convince you that it's true, to evaluate the types of situations in your life that might make you not believe it to be true, and then to consider, okay, now what do we do now that we believe it? Now that we know that as the pressure increases, as the intensity increases, we grow. Now we just got to figure out what do we do with it? How do we respond? You see, it's one thing to get the literary points of the passage. It's one thing to be good English students and read and say, I think I know the author's points. I, I, I see that from the text. It's another thing to have that shaping our lives as we go into the world this week. So how do we do it? Well, we've got to think about what scenarios are going to prevent us from, or seem to prevent us from growing and advancing. So we move from the drumbeats to life as tiny nomads. And that's verses 1 to 7. That's the first scenario that comes the way of the people of God here. Here's a summary of verse 1 to 7. A tiny group of people struggling to find food went to a land that was not their own, And then they all died. It's really, from a human perspective, a pretty pathetic start 
to the book of Exodus. This book or this, oh, these opening verses are not just sort of preparatory material and then the real book starts at verse 8. This is giving you a sober uh, reality. This group, they went into Egypt. There were only 70 of them. Egypt is not their home. Egypt is not the promised land. And before you knew it, they were dead. And one way to think about the significance or maybe seeming lack of significance of this group is think about it like this. How many nomadic families do you think there were in ancient Eastern culture that had this experience, had some famine or outbreak against them, and they all died and their name is basically totally forgotten? How many families like this have no record in world history because who records 70 nomadic people traveling around the world looking for food and then dying? You wouldn't exactly look at a group of 70 people living in one of these countries and say, you know, I think you guys are really good candidates to be the foundation of blessing for the entire world. You'd say just the opposite. A nomadic life and then death. What a depressing story. And, and to understand the anxiety or the difficulty of Exodus, you need to process how difficult it would be just emotionally and then experientially for the people to be there and then to see this take place. Imagine uh, for a moment, if I told you this afternoon, you, you know, you, you will never sleep in your bed again. For the rest of your life, you know, you're going to spend the rest of your life, maybe you'll sleep in a, a sleeping bag on your kitchen floor or uh, find a, a park bench somewhere you could sleep in, or, or maybe you'll just learn to live in your van. But, but you're never going to be able to go back to your, your main bedroom again. What kind of life would that feel like for you? So that, that, that doesn't sound very comfortable. That doesn't sound like I'll ever be at home again. I think that's how Jacob felt. Never at home again. Egypt is not the land that he would have wanted to be. It was painful for him to go there. And then, there they are, and this group of 70, of course, what happens? 70 people, they get old and they die. It doesn't seem like a whole lot of potential here, does it? This isn't nation building. This is how to end a family's existence. You ought to resonate here at maybe multiple levels. Maybe in your own life, you feel a bit like a nomad yourself. Maybe you would tell me this afternoon, you know, here are five or ten places I'd rather live than where I am right now. I can't really believe I'm here. Or maybe you don't know where you want to be, but you've never felt rooted. You've never felt two feet on the ground like you're really stable in the place you want to be, this sense of loneliness. And it's a common human uh, experience. Uh, French philosopher, not a believer, listen to his description of his perspective on human experience. It almost sounds like he's been reading Exodus or was reading Exodus. He says, man feels like an alien, a stranger. His exile is without remedy since he is deprived of the memory of a lost home or the hope of a promised land. He says that's how people feel. That's how unbelievers, that's how sometimes believers feel in this world. They have no home from which they came, no promised land to head toward. And that sense of anxiety and loneliness, that can be the pressure point for us. That can be the point that makes us say, now I'm going to snap. Now, now I give in. Now I've lost. Some of you may resonate thinking scripturally here of the life of Jesus. Jesus showed up in Egypt as a member of a tiny family with oppression breaking in from a king that wanted to kill him. More on that in a little bit. 
Some of you maybe would resonate with the life of the church here and say verse 1 to 7 seems to describe what it's like to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Maybe you're the kind of person that looks at the statistics and says, you know, there was a lot more strength a few generations ago. You know, more people were in church services like this. The church was stronger. The Reformation or the, the Great Awakening or whatever. You, it, wouldn't it be great if, if we were in a former generation, but now it seems like maybe the idea of Christianity around here, maybe that's just dying off. Maybe the church starts to feel like a bunch of tiny nomads. Verse 6 gets you there, and then verse 7 hits you right between the eyes, doesn't it? But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It repeats itself three or four times, the idea of multiplication. It's not just making an observation that some babies were born. You're getting the sense of great magnitude of growth beyond expected reality. There's the drumbeat of this text. At the moment you thought the whole thing was about to fall apart, God was building something. And that's the way God works. That's the way our God works in time and space and real reality. And as you live your life, and maybe you're like that, you feel a bit of a nomad, you feel like maybe everything's dying and falling apart, this is a time for you to every time you start to think that way, every time you read about the decline of Christianity in the West, Every time you feel not at home in the world, every time you feel that maybe it's all falling apart, go read Exodus 1, 1 to 7. Go read Exodus 1, 1 to 7. Maybe God will meet you in Egypt. Maybe God will meet you in exile. Maybe God will build something while you're in the wilderness. Maybe God will call you then to become a forward-looking person. Instead of being the person in the room that always says, I can't believe this is happening, or I can't believe things aren't the way they used to be, instead of being that person in the room, you become the person that's devoted to how can we build something for the future? How can we be seeing God at work in the next generation? One of the great signs of faith for believers is when they invest and believe in the generation that will come after they die. It is one thing for you all this afternoon to make investments in life, say for the year 2025 or the year 2030, and have a sense of caring for what happens the next 10 years in the church of Jesus Christ. It's another thing for you all to have a vision for the year 2100 or the year 2200, when none of us will be here unless Jesus, of course, returns first. But to invest in the church and invest in people and and proclaim the gospel Because you believe that after you die, God's not done. And that it's worth it. It's worth it because God will build from generation to generation. That's the drumbeat. But they multiplied. But some of you say, it's not really that sense of nomad life or small, tiny experience. It's not that that gets me. It's when other people start pounding on me. It's when things start coming at me from the outside that I can't control like, and this will be next in your outline, satanic oppression, uh, or just any kind of external oppression. Pharaoh is not a fan of Exodus 1, verse 7. It really bugs him. 
Uh, Verse 10, he's concerned that they might multiply and he's going to have a real problem on his hands. So he comes in and brings this oppression from verse 8 to verse 14. It ultimately leads to this life of bitter slavery. Now to understand Pharaoh here, particularly in the context of scripture, you need to see Pharaoh as a satanic figure. He is on Satan's team. Verse 10, it says he deals shrewdly. This is a word or expression that would be used to describe Satan there in the garden at the start of Genesis. Genesis and Exodus begin with shrewd dealings of one trying to break down uh, the promises of God. A pharaoh in that day would have worn a a serpent on his head or on his crown. He was a serpent-like figure. He is the serpent of the book of Exodus. And his movement causes an increase of pressure, doesn't it? Brutal work comes to the people. If they're going to grow, 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 then I'm going to come in and make life impossible on them until I get them to shrink. The reality is it is one thing to have your own experience. You feel like you're born in the wrong place and things aren't going so well for you. It's another thing to have someone putting the whip on your back and say, I don't care where you came from, here's where you're headed. Uh, And that type of sense of lack of control Uh, For some of us, that's we say, "Ah, and that's where I snap. That's where I break, or that's where the church starts to break, because now we can't control it. Now now something has shown up, or someone has shown up in my life, and now I'm in trouble. For some of you, maybe it's your boss is, is pressing in hard and treating you in ungodly ways, and you can't control it, but Monday morning, he or she is going to be there, and that's where the trouble is. Uh, Children may talk about bullies who make their life miserable. Someone is abusing you or hurting you in various ways, and it seems like that's the point of total breaking for you. Do you think verse 8 to 14 uh, would preach in Ukraine on a day like this? Uh, I somewhat hope that there were pastors there in Ukraine who have found themselves looking for a text and said, how about Exodus chapter 1? A wicked invasion of an enemy force to wipe out a country and the believers there facing brutal onslaughts and wondering, is this the point where it's all over for us? Where it's all over? And what's the answer of the text? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. It almost seems like Pharaoh is hastening their multiplication because he's bringing in the oppression and God chooses that to be the lever to cause them to grow even more. Pharaoh, and whatever Pharaoh that the church of God faces, whatever serpent figure you know the church would face, has zero capacity to assault what it is that truly makes God's people advance. What is it that's making them advance? Is this some human mechanisms or whatever? It's promises and providence. The promises of God in Genesis. Abraham is told you're going to have a seed, uh, as, uh, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. That's a promise of the living God who made the whole world. Some ancient king really has no rival to that, right? Is no rival to that. And so God in his providence is in complete and absolute control. He is going to cause the people to advance if he wants them to advance. So we have to believe this morning, you got to believe this in your head and then start to act on it. No matter the external oppression, no matter the whip that I feel on my back, God is going to keep 
building his people. We're going to keep growing. And we're going to live in confidence because we believe that nothing is able to touch the things that really matter, like the nature of God, the promises of God, the providence of God, the goodness of God, etc. Pharaoh can't touch that, still can't. And we, we start to live in that even when we face various oppression. It was this morning that I read of a pastor there at uh, the capital city of Ukraine, and his message to his congregants was, I'm going to go out, and if our church building is still there, we're having three services uh, or something like that. We're, we're, we're going. We're not done. We're not backing down. We're not giving up, and that'll preach, won't it? That preaches in Ukraine, and that should preach in Bloomington, shouldn't it? Uh, and you ought to be able to look at your own life. What's going to happen this week that feels like that whip on your back that makes you want to give in? Some of you may face really, really hard things. I don't want to minimize your suffering, but it probably, probably, I can't guarantee it, will be less than that experience uh, over there in Europe. And you should maybe make a little bit of a greater to the lesser kind of argument. Well, if God's people can carry on in Egypt, if God's people can carry on uh, in the Ukraine, if God's people that have been persecuted around the world experience this and carry on, then is God calling me to carry on? Yes. Yes, he is. You see, it's helpful for us to start to reckon with a passage to remember things like the persecuted church. Uh, remember our brothers and sisters suffering around the world because we start to get a sense of our place in the story. Okay, God's people can survive. God's people make it when it seems like that pressure is moving in on them. God has that work to cause them to continue to advance. But the pressure increases again, doesn't it? The, the, The next scenario that they face is the temptation to join. The temptation to join with Pharaoh. That's verse 15 to 22. In some ways, verse 15 to 22 and this plan to kill all the baby boys, it just continues what we've already been seeing in the passage. Uh, The people weren't dying off in verse 1 to 7 well enough through natural causes, uh, so Pharaoh's going to bring some unnatural causes of their death. Uh, The oppression of verse 8 to 14 uh, wasn't enough. It wasn't forceful enough, so he's going to... Uh, cause them to die in this way, particularly using these midwives. The pressure is, is pressing in, and it's, it's feeling greater. But in many ways, this pressure here is a new kind of pressure. It's a ramped-up pressure. It's the pinnacle issue of the passage because the pressure is a temptation for these two women to shake hands with Pharaoh and say, we're joining your team. In some ways, Shipra and Pua, they, they represent all of Israel here. Is the temptation going to increase to the level where they say, you know what, forget it. We've tried for a while. At this point, let's just sign on with the satanic deceiver, and let's join him. It might be helpful for you to remember or compare this to the book of Genesis. Genesis and Exodus both begin with a satanic deceiver coming after a woman or women, challenging them, pressing them to give in on their calling before the living God and join the forces of wickedness. And as you read Genesis, you see how easily and quickly Eve fell. And so you're looking at Shipra and Pua and you think, well, I suppose we know where this thing is headed, don't we? 
Now they're going to crack. Now we're going to break. Now things are going to fall apart. And they're going to join in the folly of Egypt. And this will be the downfall of Israel. You see, that's the temptation in front of us. And that's a challenge that comes to all of us. We'll think in our, our final point about how they respond and how God would have us to respond. But you should look in your own life and ask, where, where is it not just that the pressure has happened to me, but where is it that I've signed the dotted line and said, fine, I'll do your thing? Uh, where have I chosen to shake hands with the darkness? Where it's become too hard for you to resist the forces of sin, and you say, you know what? I've resisted long enough now, haven't I? I guess I'll give in. This happens in some ways every time we sin, doesn't it? We give ourselves over to sexual sin or violence, as you'd have in this passage, or uh, wickedness with our money or our relationships with other people. What are we doing? We're saying, well, I guess I'll join Team Pharaoh now. It's a little bit too hard for me to resist the temptation. And that's where it gets hard. How is it, or in what way do we overcome when we ourselves are being asked to give in to the forces of darkness? And we'll talk about that in the fifth and final points, but let me just ask some questions for self-reflection here. Make sure you think in your own life. Here's the question. Do you resonate with human experience as it's found in this text? If you're taking notes, maybe just circle. Where is it me in this text? Is it that I feel like a nomad in this world? Is it that people or someone or something is pounding on me and I'm just ready to quit? Or is it that I see in my own life a, a desire to give in to sin, uh, to follow the pathway of Eve and not of Shifra and Pua, as it were? Maybe if you're an unbeliever this morning, the question is something like this. Do you find yourself angry at this text? Do you look at Pharaoh and sort of in a fit of rage say, man, there are people, there are rulers, there are forces like Pharaoh in this world. Wouldn't someone get up and stop them? Wouldn't it be great if there was a way that those who bring kind of radical oppression and murder and death, wouldn't it be great if there was some narrative in human history that dealt with this as it deserves to be dealt with? And you ought to say, all right. How about Exodus chapter 1? Maybe there's something here that calls to you and speaks to your sense of justice and a sense of need for a solution. And, we'll, and as we, all of this is swirling. This is swirling around us. We feel like nomads. Oppression is coming. Now I'm tempted to join in. There's a lot of noise in our life. There's a certain other noise you need to hear, and it's that drumbeat. That there's something deeper, greater going on. And it's the beat of God building his church. And it's right there again with the women, verse 15 to 22. And we'll talk about this in God's solution and our calling. What do they do? What do they do? This is their eat the fruit of the tree moment, isn't it? Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Praise the Lord, right? We're so glad because they, the first real time you see significant action of the people of God in Israel, in the book of Exodus, and it's these two women who are named for all of history, and they get it right. They fear God, and the boys live. They do not cave to the temptation. Now, right now, some of you are wanting an ethical discussion 
on the propriety of lying in certain situations and environments. Why did they lie, you ask? Is it ever right to lie to our enemies? And is God blessing them in spite of their sin and all of that? So what I would challenge you to do is just stay real close to the text to get a sense of what God's doing here. Because as we see them moving, we also see them talking about God moving. And what do they tell the king of Egypt? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. The midwives explain the situation to Pharaoh by saying, you know what, there is a God who brings miraculous, unexpected, paradoxical growth to the people of Israel, causing the women to give birth before we get there, and it doesn't happen for the Egyptians. Are we sure they're lying? Are we sure it's untrue? The whole point of the passage is miraculous, unexpected growth. And these women's explanation is miraculous, unexpected growth. Now, they're being a bit subversive. They're not quite saying or doing what Pharaoh would have them to do, but it's not hard to say, look, women, go ahead and give, start the labor process. God is blessing us these days with miraculous, overwhelming growth of life. You're going to be fine. Don't call me on the phone until the boy's already there. And it works. It works. Now, maybe you disagree and say, well, I think maybe there is more lying than that going on with the midwives, but you can't disagree with this. The whole point of the passage is the unstoppable multiplication of the people of God. And for these midwives, they fear God, and he brings unmistakable, unstoppable multiplication to the Hebrew women. And that's the point of the text. God will bring life, even when death seems like it should be there. God causes the explosion. There is in Scripture this kind of motif of miraculous birth givings already seen in someone like Sarah. You see it later in Scripture with Hannah or with Mary. Why should it surprise us that you have miraculous or overwhelming blessing and birth giving right here in verse 19? You see, when you look at the midwives and what they're doing, what you really see is the work and the hand of God himself. This is who your God is. God had told Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Adam failed. He didn't do it. Was God done with the fruitful multiplication strategy? No. You look at Abraham. The promise is given over and over again. You're going to be fruitful. God will make it happen even in a world of sin and oppression. And as you listen to Exodus 1, you're not just hearing a nice story about one moment in time. A nice story where you say, isn't that great that at this particular period of time, God caused blessing. You are hearing, no, the story of human history. This is the story of human history in Exodus chapter 1. The book of Revelation chapter 12 tells the story, picture of a story of a woman who's giving birth to a child. And there's a dragon that comes to the womb and tries to kill the baby right as he's born. But the child is born anyways, rescued by the providence of God, and escapes to the wilderness. There's a salvation. There's a great magnitude of people that come and gather to worship the living God. And if I sat here and asked you, all, now what is Revelation 12 talking about? It might be that about a third of you would say, it's talking about Exodus 1. I never saw that before. And another third of you would say, that's talking about the life of Jesus. And another third of you would say, that's talking about the church. To which I say, exactly. That's the point. That what's happening in Exodus 1 
is an anticipation of what God did in Jesus Christ in rescuing him as the child, and then what God is doing for us in the church of Jesus Christ today, even when it seems like all the oppression in the world is about to end the whole picture. And here's the thing about Jesus, because Jesus doesn't get Exodus 1. Jesus gets Exodus 1 magnified times a thousand. Because what happens to Jesus? What happens to Jesus? Yes, he's rescued from Herod who came and tried to kill him, but then Jesus is pursued to the point of death. And he is the child that did die, but now he's alive again. What are the pharaohs of the world ever going to be able to do when the Son of God comes and dies, and now he's alive, and you can't kill him, and you can't kill those who are in his train because they are alive in Jesus now and forevermore? All the people in Exodus 1 went on and died again, but those in Jesus Christ, those who live by faith and the risen Son of God are united to one who lives and will never die again. He's still standing no matter what is thrown at him. And by the way, it's not just Israel now that gets the Exodus 1 blessing. Jesus comes, he rises again, and says, I'm going for all the pharaohs of the world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all the nations so that a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will give worship and praise to him. Jesus' mission in the church is making the drumbeat of Exodus 1 look like a little toy drum that I found in my kid's playroom. Because the drums, the drumbeat of Christ and his army advancing into this world, no matter what it is that would cause us to feel like we're going to snap, you can't stop this thing. You can't stop this thing. And some of you might say, yeah, but look at my life, or look at the church in the West, or look at the church here. Get your eyes open to what Jesus is doing in the world. Consider how many millions have come to Christ. Look what's happening in the church in Africa or in Asia or in other places. And you say, wait, Exodus 1 times 1,000 is happening. It's a story of history. And you're proof of that yourself. Because look where the gospel made it. It made it to someone as weak and as frail and as sinful as me, thousands of miles away from where this happened. Jesus is bringing this about and it's carrying on no matter what. So what are you called to? You're called to join Shipra and Pua, aren't you? And fear God and take action. Fear God. Be in awe of the God you meet in this text. Exodus is a book that leads you to the fear of God. Go read it. See God coming down on the mountain in thunder and smoke or him filling the tabernacle with his glory or, or meeting Moses in a burning bush. This is a God to be in awe of and what you find in Exodus is God's people shaped by the awe of God and then called to be his treasured possession. And in some ways, Shipra and Pua, they just lead the road. They just, they just lead it out in the book because they look at Pharaoh and they're more in awe of God than Pharaoh. Pharaoh looks pretty small when you have a God that we, have, that we meet in the Holy Scriptures. And so get your eyes on the glory of God. Read the Scriptures with that in mind. Read the Scriptures this week with the idea, where am I seeing a God who is so great that I can fear him no matter what I'm facing? Read the Scriptures with that in view. And then be ready to take countercultural action for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Be ready to fear God and get 
your wits under you by the Holy Spirit. And look at the forces of darkness that one, want to beat you up, and two, want you to join them. And say, not today. And not tomorrow. I'm not giving in. Because I will be found serving Jesus Christ till the day I die. Every one of us maybe has this temptation to shrink back. I see it in my own heart. Maybe if I just curl up, maybe the storm will go by. And I ask absolutely, curl up under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. But if you have the Holy Spirit, stand up under the shadow of those wings and be ready to take God-fearing action in this world. And the world may look on and say, we're bringing verse 22. We're going to try even harder. Pharaoh's not going to give up. That's not the promise. And then the world will quit is not the promise of this text. Then God will be with you and the drumbeat will keep going. Absolutely. That's the promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ who is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against what you are building We bless you for this, and we ask that we would be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, that we would go forward, conquering and to conquer, only because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Lord, we look at our lives and we recognize we have, as it were, joined in with the darkness. We have been more like Eve than Shifra and Pua. And so we thank you for the laying down of Jesus on the cross, where he pays for the sins, the sins of those who had come to him by faith. Uh, We thank you for that clear forgiveness. And the Lord, as those forgiven in Jesus Christ, uh, make us bold and strong to fear God in advance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to Psalm 107, selection E. Uh, And 107E, 107 is somewhat of a poetic uh, retelling or musing on the history of the people of God. And we'll sing in what will be the third stanza that we sing He from trouble lifts the poor by setting them on high, and like a flock in families, he makes them multiply. Uh, We'll stand for 107E, remain standing for the benediction and the doxology.